Daytona Beach, Florida, spring 1946. It's the first days of spring training for the Brooklyn Dodgers AAA team, the Montreal Royals. And a strikingly handsome 27-year-old rookie batter fouls out to end the inning, giving him another big goose egg in the hits column. For most players trying to make the team, this early season lack of production would be a non-story. But this player is different. This player is black. He's Jackie Robinson. Well, before he becomes the Jackie Robinson. The first black player to make it to Major League Baseball in the modern era. After the game, the players head to a nearby hotel to get some much-needed rest. That is, all but one because the player's hotel is actually a whites-only hotel. So Jackie and his newlywed wife, Rachel, head to the home of a local black couple where they stay in a tiny upstairs spare bedroom. The young newlyweds are exhausted from yet another grueling day at the ballpark, and they just fall back onto the bed. And then they do something unusual, something they didn't expect. They laugh and laugh and laugh. They can't stop. And this is happening despite spending all those days in an area of the country that's filled with overt racism, segregation, and even death threats. All because some grown man playing a child's game happens to have a high amount of melanin pigment in his skin. To these two newlyweds, it all seems so ridiculous. So surreal. Amusing, somehow. So they just laugh. Besides, right now they need this. Some quality time just for them. Because even though they're really just a typical young couple in love in 1940s America, their love story isn't just about the two of them anymore. Or even about baseball. It's about changing the whole gosh darn world. I'm Kevin. I've been happily married and in love with my wife for going on 10 years now. And I love telling real life stories. So I decided to combine these two worlds and create something new that will celebrate love stories like mine. A podcast which highlights what I think are the most moving, most fascinating, and most memorable love stories of all time. Stories that not only teach us about love, but also about ourselves. In today's episode, we'll take a swing at telling the incredible love story between one of baseball's, as well as America's, greatest heroes, and the woman who was instrumental in making it all happen. I'm talking about the relationship of Jackie Robinson and his wife, Rachel. And remember, if you like this podcast, please give it a five-star review and hit the subscribe button. And don't forget to like us on our World's Greatest Love Stories Facebook page. It really does help. Today's episode is brought to you by amythedatingcoach.com. That's A-M-I-E, thedatingcoach.com. And if you're interested in creating your own great love story, schedule a free relationship readiness review with Amy today. Mention this podcast for special discounts. With that said, sit back, relax, and enjoy the world's greatest real-life love stories.
Jackie Robinson played second base for the Brooklyn Dodgers from 1947 to 1956. He's not only the first black player to play in Major League Baseball in the modern era, but he's also a six-time All-Star, a World Series champion, and a Hall of Famer. Add on, he's probably one of the most important and admired players in baseball history, if not American history. But what many people don't know about Jackie Robinson's story is that it isn't just about baseball and crossing the color barrier. It's also very much a love story. His wife, Rachel, can't hit. She can't run fast. Heck, she doesn't even like sports all that much. But when things get tough for Jackie, and they really, really do, she's right there with him, supporting him, loving him, and dealing with the pressure that comes with trying to break barriers put up by pervasive racism, the segregation, the death threats, and the incessant hate that comes from the fact that some black people are trying to integrate into a white world in the 1940s. And it all begins in a small shack on January 31st, 1919 in Cairo, Georgia, when Jack Roosevelt Robinson is born to a family of sharecroppers. Shortly after his birth, Jackie's father abandons the family, forcing his mother to single-handedly raise Jackie and her four other children all on her own. Seeking a better life, Mrs. Robinson moves her family cross-country and settles in sunny Pasadena, California. With no father around and six mouths to feed, Jackie and his family remain extremely poor throughout his childhood. But although he's poor in terms of money, one thing he's extremely rich in is athleticism. Jackie's ability to excel in sports at a young age, combined with his easygoing personality, would become major factors in his ability to assimilate in a white-dominated world. About Jackie's prowess as an athlete, a childhood friend would later recall, We used to play a game in the schoolyard with everyone in a circle, and you had to dodge the ball thrown at you. Jack would always be the last one left. They'd have to stop the game. Whites as well as blacks bowed to his gifts. Indeed, most of Jack's classmates seemed to be able to accept one another easily, without much anxiety about differences in race or social standing. By the time he's in high school, Jackie is a star athlete not one, not two, not three, not four, but five sports. Everyone knows about his baseball career, but as a younger man, he was also an outstanding athlete in football, basketball, track, and even tennis. A few miles down the road, on July 19, 1922, Rachel Anetta Isom is born. By all accounts, Rachel is a traditional, intelligent, hard-working young woman whose goal is to one day go to college so she can become a nurse. Never laid out in her life's plan is to marry some jock and chart a course to change the world. But in the late 1930s at a junior college football game in Pasadena, the seeds are planted for this to happen. As she's watching the game, her attention is drawn to one of the players in particular and she doesn't really like what she sees. After almost every play, this guy comes back to the huddle and oddly always seems to put his hands on his hips. To Rachel, 
This body language indicates a person of conceit, someone clearly very full of themselves. The one doing this, of course, is the team's star player, Jackie Robinson. So let's just say her first impression of Jackie is not a very good one. Cut to UCLA in 1941. Jackie is a senior big man on campus and star athlete, while Rachel is an unassuming freshman nursing student. They're introduced by a mutual friend inside the student lounge, where Jackie is working part-time. This is how he would describe their first encounter. I was immediately attracted to Rachel's looks and charm. But, as in many love stories, I didn't have the slightest idea I was meeting a young lady who would become the most important person in my life. Soon after meeting Jackie, Rachel realizes her first impression of him back on the football field a few years earlier was way off base. She later recalls, Jack was quiet, confident, friendly, and had a beautiful smile, just the opposite of what I had anticipated. I was just so relieved to see that he was a human being that I could admire. What also really impressed Rachel was the fact that Jackie always used to wear crisp white shirts. And this white shirt was in direct contrast to his skin, so it made him look even darker. And in the 1940s, this was a big deal. So Rachel felt this is clearly a man of confidence and a man who is okay with being black because anybody that wears a white shirt like that is clearly okay with who they are. As for Jackie, he felt at ease talking to Rachel, whom he called Ray, by the way. And although she was shy, she was still very strong-minded, was articulate, and had a strong determination to make her life better. He would later say this about what drew him to Rachel the most. She was always understanding, and beyond that, very direct and honest with me. I respected the fact she never hesitated to disagree with my point of view. Before being forced to leave UCLA due to financial hardships in 1941, Jackie gives Rachel a special bracelet and a ring, and formally announces their engagement with a plan to get married when Rachel finishes school. The next year, in 1942, Jackie is drafted into the U.S. Army to fight in World War II. During their time apart, they write numerous love letters to one another. In one in particular, Jackie writes to Rachel... Last night, my darling, I thought about our love and how wonderful it is. As long as I know your love is strong, I'll make it. Together, we form a strong team, and I'm not afraid of the future at all. And their future begins to look much brighter when in the summer of 1945, Jackie gets a call that will change his and Rachel's life forever. It's the Brooklyn Dodgers. They want Jackie to be the first black player to cross baseball's color barrier since a man by the name of Moses Fleet Fleetwood Walker did it in 1884. Jackie has a meeting with Branch Rickey, the infamous Dodgers executive. This meeting begins with a handshake and a very unexpected question from Rickey. He asks, You got a girl? Jackie responds, I have a girlfriend. Ricky then asks, Do you love her? Jackie says, I love her very much. Finally, Ricky says, Will you marry her right away? 
when we get through today, you may want to call her up, because there are times when a man needs a woman by his side. By the end of that meeting, Jackie has a signed contract with a chance to one day play for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Six months after that, on February 10th, 1946, Jackie and Rachel are pronounced man and wife at the Independent Church in Los Angeles, California, in what can only be described as a beautiful and lavish ceremony. Just a few weeks later, on what should be their honeymoon, Jackie and Rachel are booked on flights from Los Angeles to Daytona Beach, Florida for Jackie's tryout with the Brooklyn Dodgers and an opportunity to play with their AAA farm team, the Montreal Royals. And remember, this is happening in 1946, two years before President Truman desegregates the U.S. Army, eight years before the U.S. Supreme Court desegregates schools, and 18 years before Congress passes the Civil Rights Act that outlawed all discrimination. Now, since Jackie and Rachel both grew up in a much more liberal-minded Southern California, their trip to Florida will offer up a sobering initiation into the realities of the Jim Crow South in 1946. It begins after they land in New Orleans, Louisiana. While waiting to board their connecting flight to Daytona, the airline informs them that they've been bumped from their flight and must take the next one. Then, while waiting for the second flight, they're bumped once again. The reasons are pretty simple. You see, even though Jackie and Rachel have tickets, these flights are oversold. And since the couple is black, well, their seats automatically go to two white passengers instead. Eventually, they completely abandon the idea of getting their rightful seats on an airplane. So they decide to take a long, uncomfortable bus trip to their final destination. Somewhere along the route, the bus makes a stop to pick up some additional passengers. Additional white passengers. This, of course, prompts the bus driver to call out to Jackie and Rachel and say, you two need to get to the back of the bus. Now, after what he's just experienced in the airports, getting bumped twice from flights so white passengers can get on, Jackie is fuming. I mean, he's ready for a fight. And he wants to say something to the bus driver. But Jackie promises himself and Rachel that he has no right to lose his temper on anyone, no matter the reason. Otherwise, he's going to jeopardize his chances of breaking down the professional baseball color barrier and then helping any blacks who might follow in his footsteps. So him and Rachel go to the back of the bus. Although Rachel is proud of Jackie for not fighting back, it's still an extremely trying and emotional moment for her, as later that night, she would weep quietly at the indignity of her husband having to be the quote-unquote white South's boy in order to keep them safe. When Jackie arrives in Daytona and meets his coaches and fellow players, as one might expect, not everyone is happy to see him there. Most mask their discontent with the attitude, well, Branch Rickey wants him here, so I'll make the best of it. But for some, having a black man on their team is just unacceptable. And believe it or not, this latter purview of thinking is held by the team's very own manager, Clay Hopper, the man in charge of making the lineup cards and basically much of Jackie's life for the next few months. 
He even pleads to Branch Rickey to send Jackie to any other team but his. The reasons Clay doesn't want Jackie there stem in large part from where he's from, the cotton country of rural Mississippi. Clay would be just fine with Jackie working in his cotton fields, but the baseball variety? No way. His overt racism never more apparent than early on in the season, when while watching young Jackie make an incredible play in the field, Branch Rickey calls out, That play was superhuman. Clay's response? Mr. Rickey, do you really think a nigger is a human being? But in the end, Branch Rickey is in charge here, so Clay can think whatever he wants about the black race. Bottom line, Jackie's getting a fair shot to make this team, period. The up-close and personal racism that Clay Hopper reveals is exactly the kind that Jackie and Rachel are going to face for the next few months. And by the way, Rachel is the only player wife allowed at spring training. At the time, having wives around was seen as too much of a distraction for the players. But Mr. Ricky makes sure Rachel is always at the ballpark and allowed to serve a role as Jackie's travel companion and support system. Given the incredible amount of pressure and stress Jackie is under at this time, it's no surprise that at the start of spring training, he really struggles at the plate. So his batting average is dismal. And in the field, he wants to prove so much that he's got a big league arm that he ends up throwing the ball to first base from his shortstop position as hard as he can on every single throw, resulting in an arm strain that causes him excruciating pain. At various times, he can barely even lift it. But it's at night when Jackie and Rachel are back in their tiny little bedroom, that's when Rachel would work her magic. She would help try to mend Jackie's sore arm by putting ice on it, massages, and she also does something else. She works on Jackie's confidence. At this point, Jackie has all this self-doubt, he's feeling all this pressure, and his confidence is destroyed. And any athlete knows is when your confidence goes, so does your ability to play. So Rachel's goal at this point is to be a great teammate and get Jackie back on the field playing the way they both know he can play. As this is all going on, Rachel realizes she's pregnant with their first child. Now, this would normally be great news, news that she would share with Jackie. But with his confidence destroyed and all the issues going on on the field, Rachel knows that Jackie doesn't need any additional pressure. So she makes the really difficult choice to delay telling him until things turn around. So Rachel watches all of Jackie's spring training games from the stands. But she's forced to do this in a way that's much different than anything she's ever experienced in the much more liberal California. Where they are in Florida is the Jim Crow South. So racism and prejudice and segregation run rampant, especially at the ballpark. She's constantly listening to racial taunts from the stands, including Jackie being called all the racist go-tos like boy and the N-word. Jackie also learns just how much he's not wanted out there from many of the players on the opposing teams. Racist pitchers throw baseballs at his head and sliding players aim their cleats right up at Jackie's body. 
And then there's the away game where the local police chief actually walks onto the field in the middle of the second inning and goes up to Jackie's manager and says that if Jackie is not removed from the lineup, he's arresting him. So his manager had no choice but to actually sit Jackie down and he did not play the rest of the game because the chief of police was going to arrest the manager. And then there's the road game where Jackie and Rachel arrive into town and are almost immediately told by their management that they're packing up and leaving. The reason? Well, they had just received a surprise visit from a member of the friendly neighborhood KKK and they wanted Jackie and Rachel out of town immediately or there will be trouble. I think it's important to understand just how very real the potential for violence against Rachel and Jackie is at this time. Between 1882 and 1930, Florida mobs lynched 212 blacks. That's the highest number of lynchings per capita in the nation, more than Alabama, more than Mississippi. So the dangers for Jackie and Rachel are very, very real. Now you would think that the pressure that this young couple feels, combined with the segregation, the racial taunts, the death threats that they were getting, you would think this could destroy their marriage but they would later say it brought them closer. Again, it was us against the world. And although Jackie is kind of the beacon for most of the hate, most of the stuff is going towards him, as far as Rachel's concerned, if it's happening to Jackie, it's happening to her too. They're a team. In fact, she would later say, my most profound instinct as Jack's wife was to protect him, an impossible task. I could, however, be a consistent presence to witness and validate the realities, love him without reservation, share his thoughts and miseries, discover with him the humor in the ridiculous behavior against us, and most of all, help maintain our fighting spirit. Jackie and Rachel are completely bonded while they're down in Florida. Their attitude is simple. It's us against the world. And this unmovable love and support Rachel gives Jackie eventually proves the difference maker in Jackie's career and both their lives. Because Jackie's arm heals, as does his soul, allowing him to right the ship and start playing baseball the way he knows he can. Soon his bat, his fielding, his confidence start to improve. And at one point during spring training, Jackie begins to refer to himself, not as I, but as we. Rachel and him are a team. Rachel would later offer up a clear understanding as to why he did this. We began to see ourselves in terms of a social and historical problem. That the issue wasn't simply baseball, but life and death, freedom and bondage for a lot of people. Jackie and Rachel's incredible determination and ability to tune out the hate and anger around them pays off in a big, big way. Jackie not only makes the Dodgers AAA team that summer, but he also leads the minor leagues in batting average, he's named league MVP, and he leads his team to 100 wins, including a championship. After they win the championship, white fans even carry Jackie on their shoulders. And then, as Jackie gets into his car to drive home for the night, fans continue to chase him down the street. A sports writer who was there and witnessed this actually wrote, 
It's the only day in history that a black man ran from a white mob with love instead of lynching on its mind. This almost unimaginable task to try to break into and integrate baseball ends in 1946. The following spring in 1947, Rachel and their newborn son, Jackie Jr., join the proud Papa in New York City as he becomes a full-time member of the Brooklyn Dodgers. In his autobiography titled, I Never Had It Made, Jackie writes this about the unsung hero of his rise to the big leagues. Rachel was even more important to my success. I know that every successful man is supposed to say that without his wife, he could never have accomplished success. It is gospel in my case. Rachel shared those difficult years that led to this moment and helped me through all the days thereafter. She has been strong, loving, gentle, brave, never afraid to either criticize or comfort me. Rachel's take on her role is slightly different. She says, I was the support person so often misidentified as the quote unquote little woman behind the great man, but I was neither little nor behind him. I felt powerful by his side as his partner, essential, challenged, and greatly loved. Rachel makes sure to attend every one of Jackie's home games, after which she and Jackie walk back home together, reliving the highs and lows of the day, before putting it all behind them as they enter into the sanctuary of their home. Because when it comes to their home, Rachel is quick to point out that what happens out in the world does not have permission to enter through the front door. She explains, We made a point not to talk about every negative encounter that happened. That would have been too much. We treated our home like a haven. And when you come into a haven, you don't want to bring in painful things. You want to cherish it. You use the haven to get yourself ready for the next day. Sadly, only 15 years after his illustrious playing career ends, Jackie Robinson unexpectedly dies of a heart attack at the age of just 53, prematurely ending their historic marriage after 26 years. Rachel is devastated, but continues her goal of doing good works in the world. She works as a nurse therapist and researcher, is heavily involved in the lives of her children and grandchildren, and becomes one of the most respected civil rights leaders of her era. As of the recording of this podcast in the winter of 2021, Rachel Robinson is alive and well, living at the ripe young age of 98 years old. And much has been said and written about what Jackie did on the baseball field, what he did to change the face of the game, what he did to change the way people think. But when it comes to defining Jackie and Rachel's love story and what its legacy is, let's let Jackie do that himself. We are both very grateful that our love for each other has been strong enough for us to give each other comfort through good and bad times. We can honestly say that each of us has stood at the center of each other's existence, that we have honored and loved each other, that we have never broken our marriage contract, and that we wouldn't trade a day of it, not for the sorrows or the joys or for all the gold in the world. How do we get, how do we get 
Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. And remember, if you like this podcast, please give us a five-star review and hit the subscribe button. Or like us on our World's Greatest Love Stories Facebook page. It really does help. And if you're a smart, successful single who's looking to find your forever relationship and want to create your own great love story, go to amythedatingcoach.com. That's A-M-I-E, thedatingcoach.com. Amy's programs help you break unhealthy dating beliefs, attitudes, and patterns through live virtual group coaching, private coaching, video lessons, and breakthrough exercises. Schedule a free relationship readiness review with Amy today. Mention this podcast and you'll receive special discounts on her various programs. See you next time on the world's greatest real life love stories.